This is a Federal News Network podcast. To ride herd on a federal department, you need a plan. In the case of Housing and Urban Development's Office of Inspector General, a five-year strategic plan. And not surprisingly, it emphasizes concentrating oversight on the high-risk and mission-critical areas. For a more in-depth look, the IG herself, Ray Oliver Davis. Ms. Davis, good to have you back. Thanks so much, Tom. There's a new 22 through 26, 27 plan for the IG office. What is new here? Well, yeah, it's our strategic plan, and it is the first one that I've had the privilege of leading our organization through. What's new here? So really, it's an opportunity to build on the good work we've already done, but it's really about being influential, committing to influential oversight, committing to positive outcomes within the department. Are we doing audits and investigations that are compelling? Are we timely? Are we relevant? The question that I ask all the time is, are we doing the right work at the right time? And this plan has set us up to do just that. You know, first and foremost, it's about making decisions. You know, we have limited resources. We need to be good stewards of those resources. So it's about choosing the right work. This plan gave us an opportunity to look historically at our oversight. And frankly, we saw some areas that we had not keyed in on in the last 10 years, things that are very important to HUD's mission, things we wanted to touch upon. An example is fair housing. You know, fair housing and equal opportunity is something that is of critical importance to this administration. You and I have talked about this a little bit, I think, the last time that I was on the show. This is a mammoth mission for HUD. And if people just look and glance at this mission, they probably think this is just dealing with discrimination in HUD-assisted housing. It does not. HUD takes in complaints that relate to discrimination in housing, even between private individuals dealing with private property. So it's a huge undertaking. So how can we as HUD OID touch that mission? Something HUD does is they work with state and local housing enforcement agencies. So something that we're going to do, a work start that we have underway, is looking at their oversight of those agencies. How are they measuring their performance? How are they ensuring that they're doing the best job possible to combat discrimination in housing? Another area that we're looking at is Ginny May. You know, Tom, when I last looked, Ginny May had over a $2 trillion portfolio of mortgage-backed securities. So we have been through the financial crisis. We're in the midst of this pandemic. We're looking at how crisis ready is Jenny May. You know, we're going to look at how they prepared before the pandemic, how they fared during the pandemic, and what measures they have in place to ensure that they can weather another storm should it come their way. So that's some of the work that we're doing in new areas. And I just wanted to ask you, too, in developing a plan like this, it must take a certain amount of prioritization because IGs sometimes can get, I've seen reports where some contingency comes up, someone traveled improperly or had improper costs in travel. And, you know, it gets to be a public relations disaster or something. And then the IG gets called in and a big investigation done. And not that that is not something that should be condoned, but the juice is pretty small compared to the squeeze because of the IG resources that it took. Is that part of the planning process also? It is. And look, you're talking about misconduct. We always prioritize misconduct allegations, certainly. But we are really hoping with this plan to hone in on the high risk areas. And, you know, that's something that we're doing with our staff that's come out of this plan is anyone in our agency, any auditor can put together a work proposal for consideration. And we have risk criteria that we ask them to consider. You know, what's the impact to HUD? Is this one of HUD's strategic goals? What's the impact to the beneficiaries? 
Is this something our congressional stakeholders have said they're interested in? A whole host of criteria. And then at that point, those proposals go before an engagement board of our senior staff, and we murder board these things. We look at the methodology. We talk about essentially, is it the right work at the right time? And that's how we get there. We're speaking with Ray Oliver Davis. She is Inspector General of Housing and Urban Development. And you mentioned there are some things that haven't been looked at deeply in 10 years, I guess almost maybe since the housing crisis of the 2008-9-10 era and fair housing. What do you need to look at that needs some attention? And you might find things are great, but then you might not. So these are some areas we've honed in on historically. There are some new ones. I think if you look at HUD's mission, there are some things that really jump out at us. Mission critical areas. You know, we look at health and safety implications. You know, we're always looking at lead in public housing, Tom. That's something that I feel every administration, when they come on board, is trying to get their arms around and trying to find a solution to. Unfortunately, most of the time we find out we've got a problem with lead when we have a child who has lead poisoning. So this is the kind of thing you're going to see us always coming back to the table on. We've just had a work start that we're entertaining in this area through our Office of Evaluation. They're going to be looking at tools that HUD either is using or could use to identify public housing that has a high risk for lead poisoning in individuals. And then we're hoping if we can actually identify some of those public housing agencies, we can have our auditors come in and audit those entities and see if, in fact, there is lead poisoning there. And there might be a chance to continue with the lead poisoning example that HUD could narrow down its activity because if something was built in the last 50 years, there's been no such thing as lead paint. You can't buy it. So don't concentrate on things that are new and waste time there, but go to where the lead paint actually might have been. Absolutely. You know, we have an aging public housing stock and that's contributing to the problem, certainly. In the fair housing, tell us what some of the issues there are here in 2022. Well, as I said, Tom, I mean, that's just a really large area uh, in terms of ensuring there's not discrimination in housing. One area is appraisals. You'll see that in the news quite a bit, discrepancy in appraisals, depending on the community and the individual whose property is being appraised. That's a pretty robust discussion right now. And we're looking at ways that we can come to the table and do some oversight in that area as well. And by the way, now that we're in the, we hope, post-pandemic era, although day by day, it's hard to tell. How has that affected HUD and how has that affected what you need to oversee and how has it affected the ability to oversee it and investigate it? Tom, the pandemic, I mean, it's certainly like nothing we've ever seen before. It affected us internally at HUD OIG in terms of our oversight, also in terms of our operations. You know, I think I've told you this strategic plan for me is all about being influential. To be influential, we have to adapt, right? The pandemic, you know, people being out of work, people being sick. The Hill working so hard to get money out the door quickly and HUD working to administer that money, there was no time for our typical oversight cycle. A typical audit didn't really provide insight to the stakeholders that we hoped. So we ended up with this whole new lane of oversight that you hear my colleagues talk about, agile oversight. You know, how can we bring topics to the table faster? How can we help effectuate change quicker? And one thing that we did during this time is we did a lot of fraud bulletins. You know, we look back on work that we've done in the past. And so we tried to prevent fraudsters from taking advantage of people who were facing eviction or facing foreclosure. We told them to beware of people who would call and offer assistance, but wanted upfront payments. You know, beware of someone who calls and says they're affiliated with your landlord. Something very simple as that could be very impactful. We also looked at 
what were the loan servicers telling our borrowers during this time of the foreclosure moratorium? What information was on their websites? As simple as that. Was it accurate? Was it complete? Was it helpful? And we were able to notify HUD that in many instances, that was not the case. So that was tremendously helpful, we believe. Then we used surveys, and you've seen my colleagues, HHSOIG did a really interesting survey of hospitals during the pandemic. We took that model and we used it with public housing authorities. You know, how were they doing administering these funds? How did that work out? And we made some recommendations to the department. We made a recommendation that they look out for PHAs who were what we call slow spenders. You know, there was a deadline on these funds. So in order to keep those funds from just being lost or not put to good use, we said, HUD, you should pay attention to those individuals, those entities. Another thing that I think has been really impactful in terms of our work during the pandemic is We've taken a different tack towards fraud. You know, so often, especially in disaster relief, and that's very much the lane that we were swimming in when it came to the pandemic, we have to wait till the money's out the door and we start to wait for the schemes to happen. We're always chasing these schemes. So we looked for ways to be proactive. Uh, My colleague, Michael Horowitz, the chair of PRAC, just testified about this in the Senate in front of his back. We did some joint work with the PRAC. I, of course, serve on the PRAC. But we tried to figure out how can we make an impact on these funds before they even leave the agency. The design of this audit was really genius. We were able to look at the Office of Planning and Development and a large portion of the CARES Act funding went there in HUD. About 9 billion of the 12 billion went to that office in the form of grants. And we looked at what was the department doing in terms of assessing their own risk for fraud in those dollars. And we applied GAO's fraud risk framework. And we said, what's that doing? What's the department doing? That fraud risk framework looks much like you would expect. And we recognize this as a best practice. And you've heard our comptroller general, he's been testifying about this as well. There's an initial assessment that's done. You know, you say, what are the risks that we're facing with this amount of money during a pandemic? You then develop your own internal strategy for mitigating those risks. You go forward, you analyze data, and then you really commit to this anti-fraud culture. Well, we found the Office of Planning and Development had not even began the initial stages of this. They had not done their own fraud risk assessment, so they hadn't got to the maturity of the model all the way to committing to this anti-fraud culture. So, you know, we put together our own risk assessment. We've encouraged them to adopt that. We made fraud risk management a top management challenge for HUD going into 2022 because of this work. And we've continued this work with the PRAC. And by the end of the second uh, review, we will have covered all the CARES Act money, as well as the money that has come out through the American Rescue Plan to HUD. So it's pretty impactful. And that ties into your objective of, when you said effective oversight, making sure that the agency has criminal, civil, administrative remedies that they can successfully pursue and not just say, oops, too bad. Yes. You know, this plan has three goals, and I think it speaks to each one of them. It certainly speaks to our first goal of influencing positive outcomes for the department. Our second goal really focuses on our success in combating fraud. I mean, there's no better way to combat fraud than to start with the department and risk assess for fraud itself. And then third, we talk about maximizing the HUD-OIG value. I mean, I think if we can inform HUD's policymakers in the best way to combat fraud, that's certainly our expertise. That's our lane. So that speaks to our third goal as well. All right. And just finally, how well is your own office equipped to do all of this? Do you have the talent you need and the, the warm bodies you need and so on? 
We do. We are well equipped. You know, we hired 120 people during the pandemic. I'm excited to offer that because that was a real challenge recruiting and and hiring. But we are. We're well poised to do this. And we've made some changes that I'm excited about as well. We have reorganized our audit division. You know, we used to be very focused regionally. We had auditors focused on local PHAs and what was happening in their region. But we've really wanted to broaden our subject matter expertise to cover HUD's entire portfolio. So now our auditors are reorganized by priority oversight area. We have auditors devoted to disaster relief. We have auditors devoted to, again, fair housing. Auditors devoted to Jenny May, single family housing. We are revamping the way that we do grant oversight work. If you look at HUD's budget in FY 2021, they obligated about $14.4 billion in grants. That's roughly 25% of their budget. So we feel like we really need to come to the table with some innovative work in that area. So we're bringing all of our subject matter experts together, and we are honing in on uh, focus areas to guide our work in the coming years with respect to grants oversight. All right. Sounds like you're well-equipped. And just, I think I asked you this the last time you were on, do you find that the cooperation with respect to documentation and data and just availability of people from the agency is where you need it to be to do your oversight work? I do. I am experiencing definite collaboration and cooperation, certainly, in that respect. And in fact, Secretary Fledge and I just issued a joint cooperation statement to our staff. It informs HUD staff about the role of the Inspector General. It informs them about their duty to cooperate with us. It informs them about their right to be free of reprisal should they cooperate with us. It's a really impactful joint leadership statement that I'm very pleased with. So yes, we're in good shape. Ray Oliver Davis is Inspector General at the Housing and Urban Development Department. As always, thanks so much for joining me. Well, thanks for having me, Tom. I so appreciate it. We'll post this interview along with a link to the strategic plan at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Take the Federal Drive home with you. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome, and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader, and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person, personally, was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, She was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, We were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while 
although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Mm. I would describe a hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit, and then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly black women and certainly 
gay Black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a signal effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview and it it, you were amazing. And it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Cough and cold season is here. Introducing Ricola Max Throat Care, Ricola's most powerful drop yet. It's the best of Swiss nature wrapped around a powerful liquid menthol center for maximum relief from your worst cough and sore throat. Maximum nature for maximum relief. Try the new Ricola Max now, available in the cold and cough aisle. Ricola. It's in our nature. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.